0: I want to invite you to turn to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. We're going to be giving our attention to Romans chapter 9, verse 30, through chapter 10, verse 4. A question that is often raised is... If God works all things according to the counsel of His will, which is what it says in Ephesians one eleven, and if God's knowledge of all things, past, present, future, is infallible, it's unthwartable, which is what Scripture teaches, then What is the point of praying for anything to happen? And most frequently that question comes up when we engage with texts such as Romans chapter 8 verses 29 and 30, which we gave a lot of attention to last summer, or Romans chapter 9 verses 1 through 29, which we gave attention to just this past Sunday. In other words, the question is raised in relation to human decisions. If God has predestined some to be his sons and daughters, and if God has chosen them before creation, before the foundation of the world, which is what it says in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, then then what is the point of praying for anyone to be saved. Why bother? If God is the ultimate decisive factor in whether or not a person turns and trusts Christ, then what do our prayers have to do with it? And I believe, I think this is right, that the thought process many times, maybe not every time, Many times, the thought process behind those questions is that if prayer is going to be legitimate, if prayer is going to be authentic, if, if prayer is going to do anything, then people must have legitimate, authentic power for self-determination. In other words, for prayer to make any sense... A person's decisions must ultimately belong to himself and not to God. Otherwise, a person's decisions, any and all of his decisions, are, are really fixed in God's, again to use Paul's vocabulary, eternal counsel. And if every decision is thus fixed in God's eternal counsel, then, as the reasoning would go, prayer doesn't make any sense. So so that's that's one side of this tension. But there's another side of the tension. The Apostle Paul himself, who communicates probably more poignantly, more repeatedly, than anyone else in scripture. He, he communicates these doctrines of God's sovereign and divine election. Paul is the one who says in Romans chapter 10, verse one, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for my kinsmen, for my unconverted family members, my loved ones who have not turned and trusted Christ, my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So, that's the point of tension. (laughs) And and that's the main question that I want to invite you to lean into together with me today. If God is sovereign, then why pray? And so with that question in mind, I want to invite you to follow along as I I read. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, and go through chapter 10, verse 4. And uh, if you're able, please, let's stand together in honor of respect for reverence for God's word. Paul writes, what shall we say then? That Gentiles... Who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? So Gentiles being saved, but Jews not being saved. Why are the Jews not being saved? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Pray with me. was Paul who said that, that he didn't shrink back from proclaiming the whole counsel of God. And Father in heaven, there are, there are temptations to shrink back from proclaiming the whole counsel of of God. There are temptations to dodge certain texts in your word, avoid them, stay away from them. There are temptations to not proclaim the counsel of God at all. And so we're asking that you might impart a grace to courage on my part, and clarity, and pray for you to impart a grace for hearts to receive and minds to understand, put all the pieces together, connect the dots. And we're also mindful, Lord, of how many, as we've just thought about, the the, the great proportion of the world that has never, ever heard any of the counsel of God. And we're asking, Lord, it is our heart's desire and our prayer to you that all of those whom you have chosen before the foundation of the world to be your sons and daughters in Christ Jesus, that they might be saved. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe may be seated. <clears throat> so my aim in this sermon is just to encourage you to um, <laughs> I want to encourage you to lean in to this healthy tension. I want to call it that, a healthy tension. It's certainly a tension, but I think it's a healthy tension. It's a biblical tension and that makes it healthy, right? That, that is that on the one hand, God is sovereign. Men, women, boys, girls are saved according to His sovereign grace. And on the other hand, men, women, boys, and girls are morally responsible human beings. God is sovereign. People are responsible. And praying according to God's will, that is praying for God's purpose to be accomplished, is... This this is where I want to... I hope I can persuade you. Praying for God's purpose to be accomplished is actually helped. It's actually enabled by the reality of God's sovereignty. So the first thing I want to draw your attention to is where Paul left us in Romans chapter 9 verses 1 through 29. That is, ultimately God is the one who decides who will be saved. God has a purpose and that purpose is to fill the earth with people who will marvel, exult in his stunning, mind-boggling, matchless perfection. And in Romans chapter 9, verse 22 looked at it last week, Paul says, "What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order?" to, here's the purpose, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called. So, this feels kind of relevant these days. You know, we're in this world of spectacular human feats of glory in these Olympic games or the Super Bowl or whatever it might be. People performing quadruple axles, whatever that is, or a 1080 flips and setting records for speed and time never done before in the history of mankind. God puts on display feats of his wisdom, his power, and and complexity that no created being could ever perform. In in a world where man would reach to be the highest, the, the goat, the greatest of all time, right? when it comes to salvation, God is the greatest of all time. There's just no comparison. And in Romans 9, 16 and 18, it says, It, that is being saved, being a recipient of God's mercy and compassion, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he will, and he hardens whomever he wills." Who is capable of challenging the Creator, challenging the potter, challenging the molder? Who thinks like he thinks? Who believes they can counsel him or you know, get him straightened out on, on some of these things? Who is like God? God alone is sovereign. And God decides who will be saved. But under, in and under God's grand display of this, his glory in salvation, man is absolutely responsible. Human beings are responsible beings. So look at Romans 9, verses 30 through 33. So what should we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Why are Gentiles getting saved? Why are so many Gentiles succeeding in achieving righteousness, a righteous status before God, where the Jews are not succeeding in reaching or achieving righteous status with God? Those are are crucial words, right? Right? And based on what Paul just said in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 29, we would expect him to to say, "Ah, easy peasy, God. God's the answer. God is the reason Gentiles are turning and trusting Jesus. God is the reason Jews are not turning and trusting Jesus. God decides. God decides who will be saved, who will not be saved. Boom, end of the matter. That's what we would expect Paul to write. Except he doesn't. Paul does not attribute salvation simply to God's sovereignty and then leave it at that. Instead, Paul says, this is verses 32 and 33, because they, the Jews, because they did not pursue it by faith. But they pursued it as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see that? Rather than laying all the responsibility for salvation on God's eternal destiny-determined sovereignty, Paul lays the outcome of salvation in these verses directly on human responsibility. Why aren't the Jews saved? Well, Because God predestined them to wrath? It doesn't say that. Rather, Paul says his Jewish brothers and sisters are not saved. Again, verse 32. Because they did not pursue it, namely righteousness. They did not pursue it, namely being counted right with God. They did not pursue it, namely salvation, by faith. But instead... They pursued being right with God as if it, salvation, being made right with God, were based on work, something that they could merit, they could earn. They didn't pursue it. <laughs> the, the Jews aren't saved because they didn't pursue being saved. They didn't pursue being made right with God as they should have. And they are responsible for not pursuing rightness in relationship with God as they should have. So what should they have done? How should they have pursued being made right with God? And in Romans chapter 10 verse 2 it says, Paul writes, I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, that is their own way of being made right with God, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness, and get this: to everyone who believes. <laughs> everyone who believes. How do you say that, Paul? Everyone who believes. You know not everyone's going to believe. Romans 9:33 says, "Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. How can you say that? Romans 10.4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So what should we say then? What do we conclude regarding Paul's kinsmen, his Jewish brothers and sisters who aren't being saved? Just write them off. Just write them off. God didn't choose them. Is that what God's word tells us to do with people who are not responding to the invitation to be made right with God? It's not Paul's logic. It's not what Paul does. Rather, Paul sees his Jewish kinsman's unbelief as an an occasion as an occasion to proclaim the glory of the gospel of God again, and again, and again, until the entire Mediterranean is filled with his teaching. Years! Teaching, preaching, proclaiming again and again, laying down his life, sacrificing it all, risking his neck, When we know people, when we know neighbors, when we know loved ones who are choosing to ignore the righteousness of God. That is, they're choosing their own path for salvation. Self-salvation. Paul is showing us how to respond rightly. And the first right response is, proclaim Christ. Proclaim Christ. Paul's Jewish loved ones didn't submit as they should have. And the responsibility for the Jews' unrighteousness lies squarely on the Jews. What they should have done is to pursue righteousness through faith alone in the fulfillment of the law's righteous demands by somebody else. Christ. That's what they should have done. But instead of pursuing righteousness, being made right with God through faith, namely faith in the righteousness fulfillment of the law by Christ, they sought salvation through their own fulfillment. Of the righteous requirements of the law. They did not submit to God's provision for righteousness. Instead they sought to establish their own righteousness apart from Christ. And according to Romans 9.32. They have stumbled. Over the stumbling stone. They knew the stone was there. And instead of taking hold of him. The rock of their salvation. God's way of salvation. They stumbled over Him anyway. And they bear the guilt. They bear their own guilt. Their blood is on their own heads because of their pursuit. Based on their stumbling. Based on the offense they have taken in Christ Jesus. They bear full responsibility for their rejection of Christ as their only hope of being counted right with God. Meanwhile, the Gentiles who are being saved, who are attaining right status with God, are being counted righteous. God counts them as though they never sinned. God counts them as though they had always perfectly obeyed by virtue of the fact that they pursued righteousness through faith in the perfect fulfillment of God's law by someone else, namely Jesus. Gentiles are counted righteous by God based on their right pursuit and entrusting themselves to the one who was the only one who could fulfill the law perfectly. So, is God sovereign? Yes. Look at verse 93, uh, chapter 9, verse 33. As it is written, so, as it was foretold, foretold centuries before the coming of Jesus, as it was foretold, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Who put the stone there? God put the stone there. Who put forward Jesus as the rock of offense? God put forward Jesus as the rock of offense. God did it. God is sovereign. But everyone is responsible for their response to the way. And to the truth. And to the life God holds out to them in Christ. So whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Christ is the end. He is the fulfillment of the law. He lived a perfect life. And the perfection of his holy and sinless life. Friends, listen. It can be imputed to you. Anyone in this room. Today, who will trust him? Turn and trust him. As you turn and trust him, God will, God will count you as perfect, as having perfectly fulfilled the law and God's righteousness, because Jesus' perfection will be credited, counted, as if you did it. Anyone. And so the right response to God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is to tell people that. (laughs) That's what we're supposed to do. Proclaim it. Explain it. Why? Because God is not only sovereign who is saved. Listen, God is sovereign over how they are saved. So that's why Romans 10.13, which our friend read earlier, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How will anyone call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without somebody preaching? How are they going to preach unless somebody sends them? There is no way. Because God's sovereign over the how as well as the who. Paul believed that God is sovereign over who is saved. Paul also believed that God is sovereign over how people are saved. And in order for the unconverted to believe, in order for the divinely chosen, sovereignly elect people to believe, they needed to hear the truth of the gospel. And so Paul, like I said, he laid his life down, suffered, Endured unbelievable suffering. Risked his life again and again and again. Took a licking, kept on ticking, so to speak. He, he, He sacrificed his whole life to proclaim Christ. That's one response to the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Proclaim Jesus. There's another way. There's another response, and that is to pray. That is, specifically to pray for people to be saved. Paul prays that his Jewish brothers and sisters would believe in Jesus so that they might be made right with God. Romans 10, 1. My heart's desire. My heart's desire. And prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Yeah, but if, if God is sovereign, well, then why pray? <laughs> Listen, uh, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, a person in need of conversion is dead in trespasses and sins. According to Romans chapter 6 verse 17, a person in need of conversion, need of being saved, is a slave to sin. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4, a person in need of conversion, well, the god of this world has blinded their minds. Blinded their minds. They're blind to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. According to Ephesians 4.18, a person in need of conversion is alienated from the life of God due to their hardness of heart. According to Romans eight verse seven, a person in need of conversion means needs... What it means is that they're hostile to God for they do not submit to God's law. Indeed, they cannot. That's their situation. So you think they can take care of that problem on their own? Rather than God's sovereignty being a discouragement to praying for people to be saved, I believe that God's sovereignty is actually an encouragement, an empowerment, an enabling means to help us pray. God's sovereignty, rather than cutting us off at the knees, it's what encourages us and engenders hope as we pray. Loved ones, prayer is a request for God to do something. And what God, and God alone, can do to save a lost sinner is to make his dead, unwilling heart come to life and incline it, to want God. What God and God alone can do is to overcome His or her resistance to God. What God and God alone can do is to unshackle that loved one's enslaved will. What God and God alone can do is open their eyes to see beauty and majesty and glory in the face of Jesus. These are things that only God can do. And if we insist that men and women, boys and girls, must somehow assert their own self-determination when it comes to salvation, we are in effect insisting that they remain without Christ. And I say that because Jesus said, John 6, 65, No one can come to me unless it is granted him or her by the Father. God has to grant it first. So, is God sovereign? According to his word, yes. Yes. Are we responsible for our response to him according to his own word? Yes. So, so how then do we pray for unbelievers? Here are some ways. We pray, probably should be obvious by now, we pray that God would do for them what only God can do. And like what God did for Lydia in Acts chapter 16, verse 14 the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She wasn't going to pay attention to what was said until the Lord opened her heart. So God opened her heart. Please do that. We pray 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, and we ask for God who, God who said, let light shine out of darkness by, the, by that same creative, bringing into being, from nothing, power. Let God shine out of, out of darkness. Let, it sh- let Him shine in their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Shine, shine, shine in their hearts. Let them see glory. We pray, Ezekiel thirty six twenty six that God would remove the heart of stone From their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. We pray John 1.13 and ask God that God would cause them to be born. Born not of blood nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man but of God. Cause them to be made new. And, And then rather than feeling helpless and passive. What's the use? We should feel hope. Because God knows how to bring people to repentance. And when he decides to do it, it happens. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop him. Not the longest pattern of habitual sinning. Not the worst kind of sinning. If God decides for bondage to be broken and for repentance to happen, it will. And then together with all of our praying, we seek, this is according to 2 Timothy 2, 24, we seek to be kind, not snarky, not belittling, not mocking, but kind to everyone, correcting our opponents with gentleness. For, Here's some of that tension again, right? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So, all that to say, it, we don't pray asking God to just sit back and, you know, wait for our unconverted neighbors to decide to change. We don't sit back and wait for the unreached to somehow. You know, if God's going to save me, he'll save him with or without us. It, we, we don't come to God appealing to him to kind of keep his distance in case, you know, his glorious beauty might become overwhelmingly, invincibly attractive, thereby violating my loved one's power of self-determination. I think, I think we do just the opposite. <laughs> we do just the opposite. We pray and we pray and we pray, oh God, just ravish my unbelieving, unconverted neighbor with your beauty. God, blow his mind with your majesty. Shackle that enslaved will. Make make his dead, unresponsive soul live so that he can praise you and trust you and exult in you. God, don't allow any inner resistance to stop him, lest he be put to shame. I've, uh, I've recounted this testimony of, Charles Spurgeon, probably too many times, but I'll, at the risk of boring you, I'm going to recount it again. Spurgeon writes, one night, the thought struck me, how did I come to be a Christian? (laughs) I sought the Lord, but how did you come to seek the Lord? And the truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought Him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek Him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the Scriptures. How how came I to read the Scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? And then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, and that he was the author of my faith. And so the doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day, and I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change. Holy to God. And so, loved ones, the the only hope that any might be saved is that God's sovereign saving grace poured out in and through Christ. That's how it's going to happen. If God had not loved us first and asserted himself decisively, we'd still be dead and we'd still be blind and we'd still be enslaved and we'd still be rebellious and we'd still be... uninterested. But hallelujah. All glory to God in Christ. Everyone, everyone, everyone and anyone who calls on his great and gracious name will be saved. That's a promise. Let's pray. Well, perhaps, Lord, you'd be giving and granting repentance to some today. Perhaps you'd be awakening some heart, some soul to respond to you, to the glorious gift of being made right with you, counted righteous with the very perfection, Fulfillment of righteousness that that Jesus lived. That could be ours. That could be someone, belong to someone here today for the first time. And so God, for the sake of your glory, for the praise of your great name, to the praise of your glorious grace, as we sang earlier, would you grant to them repentance? Grant to them sight. Grant to them willing. Grant to them freedom. Cause their hearts to live. And make us faithful, Lord, in pursuing you with all of our hearts for the salvation of lost loved ones nearby. God forbid That the doctrines of your great grace would turn us passive and dull. Rather, make us hopeful and alive and urgent and sacrificial and devoted to being great commission people. In Jesus' name.